Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Ned, we have a spectacular show today. I, I I feel like maybe we say that too often, but this one, uh, this was good. Um, we are going to interview Kurt Mackey, the founder of Fly.io, which, Ned, we talk a lot about AWS, Azure, and GCP as a platform for hosting a variety of things, IaaS, related. Fly.io is a different approach and... We get into some super nerdy details with Kurt about what they built and how it works. Yeah, the biggest thing for me is what they've built is something that is multi-region by default. That is their approach. That is how they go with everything. So you think of all these organizations that typically are running in a single region, maybe two. No, they do multi-region by default. They run the hardware, they run the software, they own the whole stack. And for me, that was the, the main thing and the big differentiator for them over other services. Now, if you're listening to this, you might be wondering, is this a sponsored show? It was not a sponsored show. We just discovered this product through, I think, Hacker News and started digging around, found that it was super interesting, reached out to Kurt, and he was happy to come on and talk about Fly.io. I really think you're going to enjoy this interview with Kurt Mackey, founder at Fly. Kurt, welcome to Day Two Cloud. Ah, it's, uh, it's, it's good, good to have you here. And uh, let, let, we got to start at the beginning, man, which is really straightforward. It, it, just give the audience in a few sentences uh, what is Fly.io. Fly.io is a platform for basically running full stack and backend apps all over the world. Um, and so the idea has been to turn the most boring Rails app on the planet into a distributed multi-regional uh, application. So a stack to run applic. Okay, so we get we get to drill into that because I'm trying to map yep. that to what I'm familiar with with uh, like the big three AWS and Azure yep. and GCP. So would you say Fly is IaaS, PaaS, both? Can it cure cancer? Has it already cured cancer? Uh, I don't actually know if it's cured cancer yet. I feel like we'll find that out later. Um, <laughs> it's a uh, it's probably closer to a PaaS. <laughs> I think there's there's some fuzziness there. So what we've wanted to do is build basically an incredibly good developer experience uh, where they can self service kind of really complicated infrastructure without having an ops team. So that's very PaaS like in that respect. But also we. Try not to have many abstractions. So one of the things you'll notice when you start using it is you can do interesting things like listen to UDP. You can actually run like DNS servers and things on it because we've tried to basically take away a lot of the a lot of the past constraints that I think exist for providers and not for developers. There's things that like make my life easier and there's things that makes customers lives harder. And sometimes those are the same. Um, and we've tried to avoid those sort of things. That's an interesting way to go about it. You said you're trying to remove abstractions, but also provide this platform that gets rid of the infrastructure messiness. So it's kind of like it's two different ends of the same spectrum. Um, maybe an example would help. What, what's a really cool thing that's been built on Fly.io? Um, gosh, there's been some very cool ones. Um, the coolest, my favorite ones are game server, kind of game server workloads um, that actually, I call them game servers, but you see them a lot in kind of productivity and collaboration apps. 
Um, so one of the things that blows people's mind when they come from from most PaaS services, for example, and use Fly, is that all of the all of the little VMs that run their code are on the same private network and they're all addressable. So when they realize they can actually make their app processes talk to each other in a way that's not possible in Heroku, probably not possible in Lambda, um, it actually seems to open up a lot of really interesting things for people. Okay, I, you mentioned something interesting, and I'm sure we're going to dig into this more. That it's actually just little VMs running each yes. bit of code and they're all on the same private network. And that, that is distinct and different than many of the other PaaS implementations on, on the other clouds. Uh, how are you doing that? Cause that seems like a real headache to spin up all these little mini VMs and maintain a private network for them. Um, it is, um, the private network's interesting. So we started the VMs we started because, um, we're kind of working on containers um, and, and Docker is just a really bad way to isolate people, both security wise and resource wise. And so mm-hmm. we looked at just lower level virtualization stuff. There's a lot of options. We ended up going with um, Firecracker. It's an Amazon open source product mm-hmm. that does tiny little VMs that, that actually boot faster than Docker, which was important to us. We want to be able to turn things up very quickly. And so that part is kind of it's like relatively standard off the shelf things that we've hacked together to orchestrate the VMs in the way that we want for our particular customers. The private networking um, was an adventure because one of the things you'll learn uh, or already know maybe when you start looking at particularly things like CNI and the Kubernetes world, the, the container networking interface is that it gets the more abstractions are on networks, the harder um, and the more complicated it gets. And then especially when you want to do things that are pluggable. So we did not do any pluggable networking. We actually run on our own physical um, infrastructure and have just basically as simple as you can imagine connections between servers and then did our private networking from scratch. And it's literally just a combo of a, it's a wire guard mesh between all our hosts. That's that we have been managing for like two years at this point. And then we use basically BPF um, rules to isolate customer workloads over that same WireGuard mesh. And so it's conceptually relatively simple. There's very few moving pieces. It's not tunnels within tunnels within tunnels. Um, and it's about <laughs> as simple as you could build this thing because um, it has to be. Yeah, WireGuard is, is an interesting choice. You can, now I haven't done this myself. My understanding is fairly straightforward to, uh, to, to automate. And then the yes. it performs very well. It's not as heavy as IPsec, but still has very strong encryption. Um, yeah. And so you can make that private network in an automated way, have security there. And then, but you said uh, BPF, so you're, so you're doing packet filtering to, again, to keep your tenants isolated? Yeah, kind of. The other, I guess the other thing I didn't mention is our private network is actually IPv6 um, only. So there's no, there's no IPv4 blocks basically on these things. And one of the advantages of IPv6 is you can, you can simplify rules a lot. So what we do is we give each customer a slash 48, an IPv6 slash 48 prefix, which is Mm -hmm. um, some very large number of IPs. It's it's, it's, it's unfathomably large. Yes. it might, that one might be the one where it's like more than there are atoms in the universe, I think is the number I heard uh, in reference to this. Um, and so the nice thing about doing something like that is is all we have to do to isolate tenants on the network side with our BPF rules is make sure that um, one that they're in basically the right prefix when a packet comes in. So when the packet comes into our host hardware, we decide whether to dump that into the VM or not based on whether the prefix matches what's on the interface for that slash 48. And we have an unlimited number of IPs. The um, the blocks will probably never conflict with anything. 
it was just another simplification choice that um, made our life a little manageable. So those slash 48s are coming out of some real routable IPv6 or not? Uh, no, we're using the FD prefix. Um, so it's within, I can't remember the name of the private reserve space in IPv6, but they're slash 48s in private IPv6 space. Got it. That, uh, okay. We have a blog post on this too. The way this works is actually kind of, the implementation is kind of fun um, and interesting because we do, um, one of the cool things about um IP prefixes is you can actually like swap octets and make interesting things happen. Mm -hmm. uh, hard to discuss out loud, but like the blog post is actually kind of interesting when you see a diagram of what actually happens to a packet when it flows from one VM and then through our mesh and then back to another VM. <laughs> oh, and the, the really nice trick there is um, when you're only rewriting IPs in that way, you don't have to worry about, you basically like create a hash for each packet that goes through. When you just swap prefixes, that hash doesn't change. So it simplifies even the BPF a mm. lot more. Hmm. Well, there you go. <laughs> but we really yes. we dove right into the uh, way into BPF. The, the lower faster we can get a BPF, the better. <laughs> Could, let, Kurt, let me just zoom back out a little yes. bit and and sort of set up the value proposition a little bit more because I don't think we got to that too much. Uh, why would someone adopt Fly over one of the big three clouds? What what's sort of the the killer feature or or thing? that makes their life so much better if they wanted to deploy and fly. So the the real value we give to people is the ability to run kind of the apps are already building in multiple regions. Um, I heard a, a, a number that may be entirely made up, but I heard at one point that only 0.5% of AWS customers run in more than one region. And the mm -hmm. reason for that is because it's, if you add a second region, it's almost like a, a exponential growth curve and complexity once you start adding regions within kind of a normal any like a normal data center and then aws is really like automated normal data center they don't really give you a lot beyond that cross region at least so people use fly because what they want to do is they want to run their apps close to their users because it's faster and they mm -hmm. can build better features and what they and they can't because it's complicated to do that basically on any other infrastructure Right. So I feel like the closest competitor or, or thing that would be closest to that would be a CDN provider whose Correct. sole goal is to get as close to the end user as possible. Is that line up with what you're doing? Uh, yeah. So we um, when we pitch to investors, we talk a lot about the CDN market um, and the difference between traditional CDNs and what we're doing is they work well for static assets. They don't work for like a, a like a, a Rails or an Elixir or a, or a Python process with a database behind it. And so we're kind of tackling, if you're being all analyst about it, OLTP workloads, right? Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, so it's like, like I said, you'll see, uh, if you see us comment on Hacker News, I've been saying for almost two years at this point, like our goal is to make the most boring Rails app in the world run on every region without any really code or architectural changes. Ah, that was my question. Do, what is incumbent on me as the app developer do, do I have to care about distributed computing and being able to run this thing in more than one place, uh, database backend synchronization, all that kind of stuff? Or is this some magical thing where I check the multiple regions box and all of a sudden it's it's available closer to my customer? Um, I would say it's it's magical, but it's in a really easily to understand. It's not it's not the type of magic you look at and don't know how it works. It's what I think is kind of a clever take on a, a way of deploying apps that devs understand. So um, I'll tell you all we're doing. And so one of our hypothesis here is that all apps should run close to users. And basically, the reason they don't is because the infrastructure is wrong for this. Right. So like our goal was to build a thing that 
the max possible number of developers could use to ship apps close to people. Um, and and uh, we did some things. We tried various databases are the hard part, right? So we tried various things, um, and I can tell you all the things we did wrong. But what we landed on is we built a hosted Postgres, and um, we built in multi-region read replicas. Uh, one of the interesting things about apps people build is despite everyone liking to talk about big data and and high write volumes and things, the reality is like almost everyone's building a read-heavy app with a relatively small database. There's mm-hmm. just not like anything beyond that is almost an edge case in some ways. And so what we did mm-hmm. is we built, um, I'm waving my hands around. Uh, we have diagrams <laughs> on our website for this, but uh, we built... Um, we built the read replicas into Postgres. Um, we made it so you can run your app processes next to the Postgres replicas. So if you have a Postgres database in Chicago, it's easy to launch a read replica in Sydney um, and have your application servers run alongside those. Um, the real the, the magic here is that when apps talk to databases, they mostly have, like most frameworks, have this idea of a read replica built in. Mm-hmm. And so they can kind of decide if they're mm-hmm. doing mostly reads or they're doing writes. Um, What we did is we made it so when you're in Sydney, you're only talking to the read replica. And what you have to do to make your app work in this way is catch the inevitable error when a write happens. So we will send all the requests in Sydney to your app. Um, If they only do reads, it works just fine. If it does a write, what happens is Postgres says, hey, uh, this is a read-only copy of this database. I can't accept this write. And then you actually tell us to replay that whole request back to Chicago where the writes can happen. And so the idea is that you just do the naive thing um, and when a write does need to happen, we, again, use network tricks, right, to get that kind of bundle of writes that happen in an HTTP request back to Chicago, uh, where it just magically works. You said network tricks, and every network engineer listening to this show just went, oh, God. Yes, right, exactly. It's it's stupid load balancer tricks is what you could label it if you're being... <laughs> um, one more multiple region question for you, Kurt. Is fault tolerance another reason that I would do this beyond... Uh, you know, geo awareness. Yes. Um, yes, it is. There's actually a bunch of, I'd call like secondary reasons. For, for the most part, devs want the performance. Um, and for the most part, the devs who use Fly have been disappointed in what a CDN can offer to their particular application. Um, I, have, I have fun, pithy statistics for all of us. Something like 60% of the top 100 biggest Y Combinator companies don't use a CDN at all, uh, which I always thought was a fascinating thing. Um, but there's a couple other like, kind of like secondary benefits. Resiliency is a good one. We've had we've had issues where a customer, we had a customer running that was backed by S3. Um, and I feel like it was last year, at one point there was a AWS DNS issue that made S3 inaccessible from certain regions, but it worked just fine from others. And we actually saw their app fail in those regions and then migrate to the regions where it was working. Uh, and their users didn't know any difference. It was like, it was slightly slower, but kind of the infrastructure moved them. Um, I thought that was very cool. And then the other one is data, kind of like data locality for like uh, regulatory reasons. A lot yes. of people like yeah. being able to keep their data in Europe or Canada because they have to. Um, second they like benefit. to do it because they have to do it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because <laughs> they can check that box for their boss. Um, actually, what they really like is doing it with the same tooling. It's a it's like a relatively it's a simple kind of infrastructure problem for them on fly, whereas doing it. Otherwise, would have maybe been a headache if they had to kind of do it mid-flight. Kurt, so when I'm hosting an app on Fly, it sounds like typically this is public-facing. But is there a use case where if I wanted to keep it all private, I mean, we know the private network capabilities there, I I could do that? Um, Yes, there is. And the way we tend to see people use this is 
Um, so there's a use case where you could run all your private apps. There's actually particularly in a distributed world where you're building internal apps for people that happen to just be in different cities and countries like the same infrastructure is still useful. I think people building internal line of business apps also like seeing that they're fast for people. It's not like a it's somewhat, it's somewhat like I it's fast here, so it should be fast, you know, when I deploy it. Realistically, people don't do that from scratch for internal apps yet. What we do see is internal apps deployed alongside public facing apps. And so they'll be kind of with the private network. What you'll have a, a lot of time is um, kind of supporting apps for something that's public facing. And then one of the cool things about our network is you can actually basically VPN to your private network using WireGuard again. So you can create a WireGuard peer connect from your local laptop to the network um, and then use internal tools. Like this is how I use Grafana, for example. It's just an internal fly app. Is there an idea? Mm. I guess I could do this with WireGuard. Is there an idea of if I wanted to connect like my, some data center that I've still got stuff on-prem living in, tunnel up to my private network in Fly? Could I, could I do that? You can, yeah. So we have a, um, basically, we call them WireGuard peers that you can create. So I would create one for my laptop. We also have this token-based API for, for issuing kind of peers. And it's designed specifically so you can run, you can actually create peers on something like Kubernetes um, along inside the pods. And we did this because connecting to people's existing database is important. So we needed to be able to connect their Fly app into like a VPC um, for larger customers. Hmm. But you can use it, you can kind of use it to, to peer your VPC with your Fly private network just fine. Some more of these uh, 10,000 foot overview, which we really seem to be bad at this, Ned. We start at the 10,000 feet and then within seconds, we're plunging towards Boom. the ground. Yeah, that, that, that's partially my fault. I can turn any conversation into BPF in like five minutes. It's just not a... It's, it's fine, man. We're loving this. Uh, d does Fly, as, as a provider here, does Fly play a role in securing my data from the bad guys, whether that's DDoS protection or anything else like that? Um, we do, I think, so we have network level DDoS protection, which I tend to distinguish for customers between like can, for generic DDoS attacks, network level is great for targeted app level attacks. They kind of have to build that stuff in. We don't really do anything for app level DDoS. Um, we do things like encrypting all network connections between VMs were important to us um, for that reason. I just think that's the default way that this, we have very... Uh, to kind of flip back to the past versus infrastructure as a service, who said IaaS? Yeah, IaaS. Uh, yeah, there we go. Um, one of, I think the one way to look at what, we, one way we look at it, I guess, what we're building is it's very opinionated IaaS. It's like a, it's like a, you don't really have options for how the network talks between VMs. It's kind of like it's just the way you should build your your EC2 if you're doing it, for example. Um, <laughs> so that's uh, anyway the. Encrypted network was important. Um, we do like the when you add persistent volumes to your apps or when you build a Postgres, for example, you get an encrypted volume as well. So it's all kind of encrypted at rest, um, which is good for at least checkboxes, even if it's it's not always the most meaningful protection you can put in place for an app. <laughs> so we, we do some of that. Usually it's pretty opaque, though. Like we don't really know what's in people's databases. We just know there's a disk there. Um, same kind of for any other kind of application. Cool. Okay. So that's all, all kind of the basic stuff that one one would expect. And uh, sadly, those of us building apps still have to be largely responsible for our own app security. There's no no magic button there. But uh, right. network level DDoS, it's kind of a big one for me as these sorts of attacks. They're just not going yes. away. It's so annoying. Um, right. It is. So, it's sort of a big deal. I think one point 
though to make about it is on you is um, historically paths have opened up a lot more to the world than necessary. <laughs> so like Heroku's Postgres, you can just connect to from anywhere and everyone shipped like a Mongo or a Redis with no password at some point, And then you can just like Uber <laughs> up the data. Um, this is, like, I think if you build the infrastructure, right, you kind of protect yourself from a whole crazy class of problems, which is why the private networks were so important. Like you can kind of deploy a database on fly and no one's ever going to go connect to that from outside your network unless you decide to, do the work to make that available. Um, and so anyway, but I, yes, it's still up to the app dev, but I think infrastructure providers have kind of a responsibility to give people the right infrastructure um, for yes. these purposes as well. Right. Yes. <laughs> Provide some scene defaults and then yes. prevent you from shooting yourself yes. in the foot. I, I have very difficult that... for shooting in the foot. <laughs> right. A lot of the cloud providers have started to move towards that sort of scene defaults. Like if you want to make an S3 bu bucket public now, you, you you have to tell it and then it asks right. you if you're sure and then it asks you if you're sure again really really <laughs> and then every time you look at the bucket in like the console it's like got a big red thing next to it or something that says this is public <laughs> it's, right. like, it's hard to get away from <laughs> of course yes. if you do it programmatically you're on your own but right you can do anything <laughs> with terraform it's fine <laughs> yeah exactly so you have all these sites i'm assuming how well, I, I am assuming. How many sites or regions do you have in Fly.io today? Um, we have 22 regions. And so I think 18 right now are available for you to deploy application code to. Um, okay. So there's, yeah, kind of 18 you can target. Um, that's been a, I could talk a lot about regions and CDNs and things because we've learned a lot about that stuff. Uh, but it's been a, it's a really interesting, how many regions you should have is kind of an interesting question. And we see really fascinating things from customers where they run in like four and that's all they ever want. And that's cool for them. So. Right, right. I, I'm curious in terms of the actual rack space you're using, you, you said you're running your own physical machines, yep. right? And, and physical hardware. So are you just renting colo space from different providers across the world? We do. Um, we largely do kind of manage colo. So we end up leasing the server and the colo all as one bundle for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. We have a pretty consistent, big, relatively, I mean, for 10 years ago, there's astonishingly large servers, but they're kind of like normal big servers now. So we, we kind of have a consistent um, server we ask these vendors to put in place for us. It's all Epic CPUs. It's like like eight terabytes of NVMe, like 512 gigs of RAM on these things that we run the micro VMs on. But it is, um, yes, managing those providers. I was actually pretty nervous about doing the physical hardware at the beginning. I think uh, someone tweeted, I was like, that was the worst possible decision if you ask anyone that actually is paying off in spades for us now. <laughs> so that was, that's was that been a fun journey. Well, what do you mean it's paying off for you? Just because of the control you have or financially or how do you mean? Both, really. So um, initially when we picked physical hardware, it was because we needed to do this anycast layer in front of the apps we were running. And it was very difficult to do that on a public cloud. Um, over time, what's happened is it's given us a lot more control over what we ship. So the, the Epic CPUs are a huge win, and it would be difficult to get those from if we were like getting VMs from like DigitalOcean or EC2 or DCP. Um, mm -hmm. It's also helped us. Uh, margins are kind of a big deal. And this is where uh, I tend to butt heads with investors because they're like, at your stage, you shouldn't worry about margins. And I'm I, I'm like, well, at my stage, we should worry a lot about margins because I don't mm. want to have to talk to investors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what if but, we slowed the burn rate down? Correct. Mm. Yeah. It's like, what if we could make money when people gave it to us? <laughs> Hold on. Heresy. Right? Heresy in the church of DC. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I pretty firmly believe 
believe everyone should understand their unit margins and understand if they're not making those good right now, like why, and make sure that's, it's like an investment, right? If you're burning money for margins, you're investing in something in the future. But one of the cool things for us is it's, it's let us actually ship things at prices that are um, comparable to if you were going to use something like Lambda. And in some cases we're, we're much better for some things because in particular our bandwidth pricing is sane and not what like Amazon and Google charge people. Uh, you can run like video workloads on fly and it's not going to, it's not going to put your company out of business basically because that we have, we've done all the work to, to kind of get around this stuff. You said video workload. Okay. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean I put an MP4 uh, of a of a video out there and you distribute it like a CDN or something else, like a trans uh, transcoding or something? Um, transcoding is a big one that we see requests for. One of the things that people like to do, one of the things that people like us for compared to a CDN, is you can get kind of provisioned CPU capacity in these regions. So if you're doing transcoding or like image resizing, it's nice to actually be able to buy several hundred CPUs to do this stuff with. Um, the, the video, the more interesting to me for us, I feel like video on CDN is a relatively solved problem, but stuff like like the Zoom call we're doing right now is actually incredibly bandwidth intensive. There's no CDN on the planet that's going to make this good. Um, it's more it's more that kind of work where there's a lot of people building in kind of video communication stuff into their apps now mm. that won't pay AWS bandwidth prices because they would be out of business in a hurry. Right. How are your uh, data centers or different regions interconnected today from like a, a layer one up through layer whatever standpoint? Um, we largely we're too small to have a sophisticated answer to this. So we largely lean on the the people that we buy Colo and and servers from to manage the networks. Um, sure. So like we do a lot with Equinix and what was called, what was packet previously. Yes. Um, and, yeah. uh -huh. and so most of it's over. <laughs> Uh, most of the interconnects are between are over transit, basically, with whatever the transit mm -hmm. agreements that Equinix now has between their regions um, that we're kind of right. piggybacking on. Um, we've learned a lot about what's connected to what lately. I was actually surprised, for example, we have servers in uh, Santiago, Chile, and we have servers in Sao Paulo. Um, but people in Argentina actually connect to Washington, D.C. because it's quicker to get from Argentina to Washington, D.C. than it is to get from Argentina to Sao Paulo. Um, That's just, yes, it's, it's where the fiber is the internet. and how yeah, it's right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm up in the northeast of the U.S. It's faster it, for me, latency-wise, to connect to a server in Chicago, which is where I run most of my yep. DPSs, as opposed to New York City, which yep. is geographically way closer. Right. Just, it's, it's the fiber, baby. It's, it's the way it goes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's fun to watch, though, because it's really counterintuitive sometimes. But uh, also, I live in Chicago, and I feel like I'm cheating because everything feels fast to me at all times now. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> <Bell> point. <laughs> we pause the episode for a bit of training talk. Training with CBT Nuggets. If you're a Day 2 Cloud listener, you are, you're listening to it right now, then you're probably the sort of person who likes to keep up your skills, as am I. Now, here's the thing about cloud, as I've dug into it over the last few years. It's the same as on-prem, but different. The networking is the same, but different due to all these operational constraints you don't expect. And just when you have your favorite way to set up your cloud environment, the cloud provider changes things or offers a new service that makes you rethink what you've already built. So how do you keep up with this? 
training. And this is an ad for a training company. So what did you think I was going to say? Obviously training. And not just because sponsor CBT Nuggets wants your business, but also because training is how I've kept up with emerging technology over the decades. I believe in the power of smart instructors telling me all about the new tech so that I can walk into a conference room as a consultant or a project lead and confidently position a technology to business stakeholders and financial decision makers. So you want to be smarter about cloud? CBT Nuggets has a lot of offerings for you from absolute beginner material to courses covering AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud skills. Let's say you want to go narrow on a specific topic. Okay, well, there's a two-hour course on Azure security. Maybe you want to go big, wide, all righty. There's a 42-hour AWS certified SysOps administrator course and lots more cloud training offerings in the CBT Nuggets catalog. I gave you just a couple of examples to whet your appetite. In fact, CBT Nuggets is adding 40 hours of new content every week, and they help you master your studies with available virtual labs and accountability coaching. Interested? Of course you are, so satisfy your curious mind by visiting cbtnuggets.com slash cloud and figure out if CBT Nuggets will work for your training with their seven days free trial. Just go do it. cbtnuggets.com slash cloud for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. So, so, okay. So I'm in Chile, but I end up connecting to Washington DC because there's some decision made along the way. Is this, uh, how do you determine how to route those users to which data center? You mentioned Anycast along the way, but talk us through the algorithm. There's actually kind of two stages to this. So we run what we call our edge. So it's, it's our global load balancer. We run in all the regions and, and every app gets an, an Anycast IP. And so basically the, the decision of a user getting a packet to our edge is pretty much core internet, you know, Anycast decides. Um, and then and then we work with a, we actually kind of offload all our Anycast management to uh, another company because we don't want to do our own networking just yet. But in general, what happens in San Diego is hopefully you'll end up at our Santiago pop and we do all the TLS there. I think for us, the interesting problem happens when you connect, we know you've connected, we know you want to get to this particular app and this particular app is running in five other regions. Uh, which one do we actually send you to? Right. Um, it actually gets to be a big hairy problem because what we started with is like just send them to the closest, but then you overload closest uh, pretty quickly depending on traffic bursts mm. and things. And so what we actually do now is we we keep this concept of capacity per application VM. When we route a connection, we go to the closest with availability basically, um, mm. which could be either CPU, it could be some connection limit, it could be you know a lot of different things. It depends on the app. Um, the really interesting problem there is we have this distributed, eventually consistent problem where we get a connection in Santiago. We see that maybe, you know, Ashburn, Virginia has the closest VM that we think has load at the time the connection happens. And then by the time the connection gets to Ashburn, it's like, no, this VM's full. We can't actually do anything with this here. Um, so we actually had to implement all this retry logic to bounce between regions um, when basically to do kind of, we call it latency shedding. And so the idea is if you've maxed out, I have a fun story for why this had to be built, by the way. But if you've maxed out your capacity in Virginia, we'll, we'll actually retry a request in maybe New Jersey or maybe L.A. or maybe in Sydney. I mean, who really knows like what the next best option is effectively. So you, you've got to have a, some kind of an ingest load balancer or something because you're using Anycast, yep. which means you got no control over that component of it. Correct. I'm going to connect to wherever that closest IP is. But then as that inbound comes in, you've got all this metadata you're applying to the decision of where to send them. So you got to bring it in, 
wherever's closest and then yep. basically backhaul it across your network to where whichever data center you want to service the request yeah yes and then when that data center is full uh we have to re-backhaul it to a different one basically when when basically that we've we, there's been like a race condition that causes the request to get somewhere that can't handle it by the time it actually receives it um so yes there's a kind of our global proxy that handles TLS termination, handles TCB and UDP load balancing, makes various levels of choices for this stuff. And is um, that your own magic load balancer or is that some third party that had all the magic built in for you? No, that's that's us. Um, one of the things I tell people is like the special things we've built are our, our global load balancer and then the private networking. And kind of mm. everything in between is is kind of your typical cloud stack where you kind of take things that already exist and make them work the way you want. Um, but arguably, our whole company exists because of the global load balancer. It's just such an interesting problem because it, it's a dynamic problem too. latency, yep. load, all changes in real time. And so you've got, I don't know if you're making a request by request decision or how you're doing it, but geez, dude, that's an achievement. <laughs> it's request by yeah. request. <laughs> um, wow. So the fun story here is when we first got a big customer, um, they were doing a bunch of image resizing and... For a reason I don't really remember exactly, we had, well, A, we had small servers everywhere at the time. We were, we were like tiny and spending like 8K a month, and that was more money than we could fathom at the moment. Uh, <laughs> and and they got a huge burst of traffic in Tokyo for basically doing 100 million imagery sizes a day. Uh, and Tokyo just melted, as far as I can tell. I'm not actually sure what happened to servers. I just know they vanished and we couldn't do anything there anymore. And that's when we kind of had this moment where it's like, we can't just naively send people's traffic <laughs> to the place that's close. Uh, we actually have to be able to account for availability and load. And even uh, now, like latency, latency will degrade between two regions for no reason that we can understand. And we just have to route around that effectively. And so it's request by request. And sometimes we make that decision multiple times before we even establish the connection or request to the, to the app. Gotcha. Okay. So I, I think I have a, like a pretty good understanding of what's happening from a networking side. I, I, we could probably spend another hour on that alone, but I do <laughs> yes. want to get onto the, the cloudier application side of things a little mm. bit. Um, you mentioned you're using Firecracker and yep. you're using micro VMs. How do I get my code onto those VMs? Do I ship you an ISO? I'm guessing probably not, or a VHD. There's got to be a way to get the code there, right? Um, yeah, so um, under the covers, you ship us a Docker image. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, the new grosser version of an ISO maybe, if, you're, if you've used ISOs and like <laughs> Docker. I mean, it, at least it has layers. We, we have a blog post about, it's called Docker without Docker, that kind of goes through this process of, of how we, um, what we do with Docker images when you push them to us. Um, yeah, I, think I think I read that, that one. Is that the one where you say it's just a bunch of tar balls? Yes, that's exactly the one. Yeah. And then it and then it goes into why tar is a terrible format, but we used it anyway. So we just are going to continue <laughs> with it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we ended up part of the reason there's there's things you'll hear me make strong statements on about like this is how things should be done. And there's things like Docker images like this is just how the world works. So we're going to adapt to that because we want one of our goals is to make it so you can kind of launch an app within a, a few minutes with no no like uh, mental overhead. Right. And so right. we have a CLI that abstracts a lot of this. It'll just build your local Docker image and then push it to our registry and then tell us to deploy that particular image. Shaw. But it's all just Docker under the covers. <laughs> Okay, so if I already have a Docker file, I'm I'm already golden. All I have to do is run your command line yeah, tool to you get run that fly launch, to your basically. Registry. 
Yep. Okay. And then, then that's you're running your own private Docker image registry where all of these images are. Does each customer get their own registry or is it more of a shared pool? Um, each customer gets an, it's a, it's a multi-tenant registry we've built. So each customer gets their okay. own registry, um, that's only for their organization. Um, we'll actually launch Docker daemons for you to do the build. We found out a lot of people, I don't remember, but like more than half of the people that tried fly didn't have Docker running locally. Um, and so what we did is we built a lot of the Docker intelligence into our CLI to push the context to a daemon that we run as an app on fly. Um, to do the build. We also give it a ton of CPUs and RAMs. So it looks insanely fast to people when they when they do a remote <laughs> build. Um, it is insanely fast. It doesn't just look at um, But yes, the, the registry is kind of interesting because one problem when you do everything global by default is putting all your Docker images in Virginia is actually pretty slow for kind of anyone in Asia Pacific or Santiago sometimes. And so what we do sure. is we actually run regional caches. And when you push, you go through our regional cache and we actually keep a copy of it. So it's like a write through cache that's in the region you guys are in. I don't know what cities you all live in, but it's probably in the city you live in. One cool thing we discovered is that de developers tend to launch apps in the city that they're in, if they're as close to the city they're in as possible. And so just by doing that, we made things like substantially faster for people under most under, in, in most cases, just because the app comes up close to them and the Docker image is also cached close to them. Gotcha. Now, we're saying Docker images, but it's actually running on a VM. Correct. So I assume there's some things you have to change about that image. And potentially there's some enhancements or additional things you can do because it's not just a container. Right. Um, we so the the real technical in the weeds version of this is when you when we launch an image, what we actually do is we use um, a combination of container D and LVM. And so when we pull the image down to the host that we then run the firecracker on, what happens is um, it's 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 basically LVM thin volumes it creates per Docker image layer. So if you've looked at Docker, it is just a stack of tarballs. And what happens is we let LVM create uh, a thin uh, thin snapshot basically per layer. So when you do incremental changes, it's actually very quick to change because it just reuses with the layer that's already sitting there on the host. Um, when you extract Docker, you end up getting, in our case, we get LVMs, but it's still just a, it's just a file system that we kind of provide to the VM when we boot the thing. Um, we have to inject an init binary because there's, there's not always obvious what to run. So we have a Rust-based mm -hmm. binary we inject uh, into the file system, and then we launch Firecracker, say, here's your device ID, here's the binary to run from this device, uh, and then kind of go do your thing. Okay, and in terms of workload types I can run? Is it basically anything Linux based? Uh, do you support Windows containers? Yes, they are an actual <laughs> thing that exists in the world. Uh, <laughs> I know it's shocking every day. Uh, or, or are there some limitations on what like run 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 times are supported? Um, there's it's Linux. It's anything Linux based right now. Um, in theory, the way the VMs work, we could actually run even things like um, unikernel type apps. So we could actually run mm. a kernel-less um, um, application if you were able to build something like that. And we gave you the tooling to launch that. But for the most part, it's it's just Linux-based Docker images. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was pretty sure you weren't going to be supporting the Windows ones. No, we needed it yesterday, though. Microsoft that does. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a sad <laughs> net? Are you going to be okay? <laughs> oh, I... I don't have a dog in this fight. In fact, I, I think Windows containers is a little bit ridiculous, but, you know, uh, some people have feelings about it. I want to make sure that we're inclusive about this sort of thing. 
We, you know, we okay. needed a Windows VM yesterday to test some stuff um, because only one of us has Windows running on like a NUC or something. And uh, and we were actually irritated how hard as it was to get a VM from NotFly. It was kind of funny. It's like, I wish we'd had Windows VMs yesterday so we could run our own stuff because it's just we're, we, we turn up <laughs> VMs all the time. And as soon as we needed a Windows one, I was like, why is this so difficult? <laughs> right. Um, another thing that I've encountered, especially with like serverless ish can yep. type applications, which is kind of what we're talking about, is the need to warm up an application right. uh, before the requests start coming in. Uh, how do you deal with that today? Do you have to keep some copies running? And uh, am I as the client paying for those copies right. to run in all the different regions? Um, the the short answer is uh, yes. So we I tend to think of serverless as um, like functions as a service versus something like what we're doing or Fargate is doing or Google Cloud Run is doing. Um, we're, we, we, when you deploy an app, we launch the pro, we launch a tiny VM, we let it run forever. Um, when you scale to multiple regions, um, we turn them up in multiple regions, let them run forever. When you scale back down, we kind of go back to the one, um, you do have to pay. We actually built a free tier specifically so you can keep three tiny VMs running at all times without giving us any money. Uh, cause the goal has been to get people to do like side projects here and nobody wants to pay for that. Um, but in general, yeah, we're, we're very much like. It's, it's almost just like provisioning your own VPSs, right? Like you kind of get VMs and they go off. We have some auto scaling logic that'll turn them off and on, but it's not really all that sophisticated under the covers, um, which I actually think is good, but you know, functions are coming someday. So the way you build then <laughs> sounds like what we're pretty much used to. I'm going to reserve a CPU instance with some kind of RAM characteristics and maybe some network bandwidth or something. And I get billed, what, some static amount per month? Per That's second. Per yes. While it's on. So we are pricing, okay. you'll see a per second price and then an estimated monthly cost because months are inconveniently different lengths. Whether I use what I yes. reserved or not, it's not a uses based model. Uh, correct. Right. So if it's on, you get charged for it. If it's off, you don't get charged for it. And then when you um, when you so most apps are on full time, some of them actually scale up and down based on traffic. Um, so it's kind of usage based. But in general, it's either on or off and you're getting charged for it or you're not. OK, OK. We've talked about some different use cases. Transcoding came up, something very CPU intensive. Yep. Um, as you're spinning up different customer workloads and trying to figure out where in your infrastructure to put them, is, is the, the noisy neighbor problem something you've thought about? It is um, because we've also all suffered from like CPU steel. It's like a, it's just a huge pain and it's usually <laughs> like a 2 a.m. emergency and you don't know why. And then you go figure out that steel is the problem and then have to be, then figure out what, you know, it's funny watching um, you hear people talk about how they provision cloud VMs and frequently they'll actually check for steel and then kill the thing if it's above some threshold and then go get a new one thinking it'll put them on new host hardware. Um, the, what we do <laughs> We sell two types of VMs. We sell shared CPU VMs. They're literally called shared CPU. And we and then we sell dedicated CPU VMs. And so what happens on the shared CPU is you're on a pool of CPUs with other people using shared CPU stuff. Um, we It's basically just C groups to control this. We basically give you a, your, your proportion. If everyone's bursting, you get, you know, you get one eighth or whatever of the CPU when it's on full time. Um, and then the dedicated CPUs for things like image workloads, you don't end up on the same hardware thread as another customer at that time. You get that whole hardware thread at all times. Um, if you get to them, you get a whole core. It's almost like quality of service scheduling. Yes. So reminds me of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then one of the funny things about clouds is they all like to say vCPUs, but what they're really talking about is probably two hardware threads per core. 
And so actually getting a reserved core yeah. on a cloud is relatively difficult because you need to figure you need to get two co-located vCPUs, which is a interesting challenge for for mm. again, I don't love abstractions. Like I'd rather people just know exactly the hardware they're getting. Um, so we've kind of opted in that direction a little more. So talk to us yeah. about Kubernetes because you can't have a show where we talk about cloud and not bring up Kubernetes. Is there any special relationship Fly has with Kubernetes or comments you have on that? <laughs> oh he starts boy. out with laughter. This will be good. <laughs> well, uh, well, hey, we don't use Kubernetes because it won't work for what we need. Um, we ended up, we ended up, um, we orchestrate VMs with basically HashiCorp Nomad. Although at this point, it looks a lot less like Nomad than it used to, um, <laughs> because it's not like neither Kubernetes or Nomad are built for what we need to do under the covers. Um, we actually, we have this internal metric of how many customers have told us they shut down a Kubernetes cluster when they moved to fly, uh, which I kind of get a huge kick out of. Um, mm. I feel like Kubernetes is actually technically amazing. Uh, it always fascinates me when companies that basically built a CRUD app hire someone to manage their Kubernetes. It seems like in some ways, like we've regressed on infrastructure in the last 10 to 15 years. It's become so much more complicated despite having like a tremendous amount of CPU and stuff. And so my feeling is for the people who actually need Kubernetes, Kubernetes is amazing. Uh, but I feel like most companies shouldn't be messing with Kubernetes for the most but part. But it's very cool, Kurt. It's very it cool. It is cool. You know what? This is going to, I don't know. <laughs> what I think Kubernetes is, is a way for people who like to do DevOps work to, to guarantee themselves, like to basically build a full-time job from kind of any level of complexity. And so like, as soon as you put Kubernetes in, you have, you have suddenly a full-time job and maybe even a second person to hire. Right. Um, and so like, if I were doing that work, I would love Kubernetes because it's fun. It's, it's interesting. Uh, it's fun to build a whole pass for a company. Uh, whether that company needs a whole pass kind of internally or not. I have strong feelings on Kubernetes, uh, obviously, <laughs> and we don't we don't use it. <laughs> but I, I think it's very interesting that you chose to use Nomad for your orchestration and then customize the heck out of it. In my experience, Nomad is less opinionated and yes. leaves you with lets you do more uh, and doesn't try to abstract as much stuff. And it's also more lightweight. Is that yep. the reasons you selected it? That's exactly right. Um, lightweight is an important one. We we can keep Nomad in our head. Like we can basically understand what Nomad's doing at all times. And that's not been true for me for Kubernetes for like five years at this point. Like it's just big. Um, <laughs> as soon as you get anyway. Um, but then the other you mentioned abstractions. This one's kind of interesting. Uh, and I talked about this a little bit with the networking. We don't use CSI or CNI because we don't need pluggable storage or pluggable networking. And we're much better off kind of doing our own storage and doing our own networking in a much simpler way that doesn't kind of inherit all the baggage of the standardized pluggable things, right? That was air quotes for people for, you know, if this doesn't go on YouTube, I'm making air quotes <laughs> continuously now. <laughs> so like all the Kubernetes interfaces for doing things like storage and networking make complete sense if you want to be pluggable and support multiple cloud providers and move from EBS to Google Drives or to LVM or something like yeah. that. But for us, it's like we're literally mm -hmm. never changing we're never plugging storage or we're never plugging networking. We kind of built ours and this is it. Um, and it's simpler to have our own not abstracted interface directly to what we need. We're only a company of seven. Okay. So like keeping things simple is actually, I'm not <laughs> sure seven people could run Kubernetes for us. Like it's like, it's a, and that's not even a knock against Kubernetes this time uh, as much as, as like a, just kind of a fact of how big that thing is um, for people. All right. Uh, another thing that I noticed as I was reading through the documentation a little bit, and first I want to compliment you on your docs. They oh, are thank you. <laughs> clear and they are well-written 
and I can find things in them. <laughs> and uh, you'd think That's that would amazing be a pretty low bar. Yet so many people or so many companies, I should say, don't clear that bar. And Ethan knows I've gone on this rant before. So I won't, <laughs> I won't take but, but oh, as someone who writes docs occasionally, uh, I just I, I appreciate the craft and I, I appreciate it when it's well done. Uh, one of the things I noticed is you have your own command line tool. I think we mentioned it before. Fly CTL. Is that the only way to interact with Fly CTL, or can you also do it through APIs or some other tool set like Terraform or something like that? Um, we have a so Fly CTL talks to a GraphQL API, so you can actually build a bunch of stuff on top of Fly without using Fly CTL. Um, and we did, I mean, like mm-hmm. the CLI has to have an API, so we just decided to do GraphQL and make it pseudo public because we knew people would ask. Um, so in our community, mm-hmm. you'll see people using the GraphQL API. A lot of times, we have people that are running. Um, kind of like a single tenant SaaS. They want to launch a new stack customer to get in, and the API is a nice way to do that. Um, we there's I think someone was working on both a Terraform and a is it Pulumi providers so to basically mm-hmm. consume the API to make Terraform and Pulumi work. Um, but those are the tools. I thought you were going to ask about Web UI, but when that question started, uh, uh, which I thought was kind of funny, because then it went to Terraform instead, and I was like, oh, that's that was not what I was expecting. So, well, it, it's it's kind of no. we do we talk about automation a lot on this uh, yeah. on this podcast, and so that it was really that was the context as opposed yep. to the the clicky clicky. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so we started with CLI for automation, basically, because you can even script the CLI. It's pretty easy to integrate into all kinds of stuff. Um, so we have like a GitHub Actions thing that just pulls down the CLI into CLI stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Every time I work with developer tooling and somebody brings up the UI, everybody gets all offended. Like, oh, no, you do it at the command line. It's a fool. And so I wasn't no, even going to bring it up. CLI. <laughs> I lo- I really like and this is a, I like the UI for metrics and like ultimately logs like going and kind of looking at stuff the UI is great but for actually doing things CLI is maybe we're just old and grizzled and this isn't the way that the new kids are going to do it in the future but CLI is for the win I guess <laughs> this is the way <laughs> Curry we're we're coming up on the end of the episode here man there's uh, we've we've covered a lot of ground but is there anything that we didn't get to talk about that you think is super cool or interesting that you want to point out about fly.io? I think we sort of talked about it. I think the thing I need to keep hammering on really is that like boring full stack apps work all over the world on fly. It's kind of like, it's a, it's a, like everybody's building something boring that would benefit from this. And I think that's that when we kind of hit that point where like boring rails or boring Phoenix or boring Laravel just worked. It was kind of amazing when I first shipped shipped like a stupid rails app and had it work multi-region. Um, and so that's the, <laughs> I think that's the thing I keep despite talking about video transcoding and CPUs and everything is like that we kind of built this for boring full stack apps. And I'm, I don't mean boring badly. It's like what we're all building, right? It should just work and it should be fast. Right. It's kind of what we're after. So. Well, Kurt. Boring uh, is code for it makes money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it makes money and it doesn't wake me up at 2 a.m. That's kind of the. <laughs> Right. Kurt, tell people how they can follow uh, you on the internet. Are you uh, out there in Twitter land or blogging or anything like that? Um, I I blog on on the fly.io blog occasionally. I'm Mr. Kurt on Twitter. Um, I'm not nearly as loud as I as I should be, but occasionally I'll retweet and make it hopefully interesting tweets. Um, But that's kind of that's that's where I'm at. Very cool. And then for, I mean, fly.io, we've been talking about that. Is there anywhere else that people should go if they want to know more about uh, the platform? 
Uh, nope, just Flight.io, and and apparently are better than mediocre docs, which is a real high praise. So that's that's uh, go look at our docs and then tell me if they're slightly better than mediocre. That's a really a, a good place to be. Coming from Ned, you have no idea how high that <laughs> praise is. <laughs> Thank you very much for appearing on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, those of you out there listening, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. Hit Ned or I up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show or fill out the form on Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. If you have a way cool cloud product that you want to share with our audience of IT professionals, because you're, you're a vendor, you've made something amazing, and you just want to let these cloudy folks know, you should become a Day 2 Cloud sponsor. You will reach several thousand listeners, all of whom have problems to solve, and maybe your product fixes their problem. We're never going to know unless you tell them about your amazing solution. So find out more about that at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. (laughs) 